This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Thing from Another Medium, the podcast about cross-gender adaptations. I'm Adam. I'm a non-binary literature nerd who loves movies. And I'm Maeve. I'm a trans-femme film nerd who reads books uh, sometimes. And today we're going to be talking about The Birds, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And it wasn't until we were doing the research for this series that we found it was based on a short story by legendary British author Daphne du Maurier. The famous writer of Rebecca, which... Hitchcock also adapted to the tune of a Best Picture Oscar. Mm-hmm. And because Hitchcock was very much a man and Du Maurier was a woman, that makes The Birds a cross-gender adaptation. And we're here to talk about the book, the movie, and everything in between. And considering the purview of our show, talking about like adaptations, gender, like everything in between everything... It's probably a good place to start talking about Du Maurier since she's such an intriguing writer and there's so much stuff about gender and everything she wrote. Yeah, and you can talk about why that's the case because there's a lot of potential reasons, mainly being like if I guess if you were a writer in a certain time and you were a woman, everyone just kind of expected you to write about being a woman as a part of it. But Daphne du Maurier, like she sort of grew up knowing everything that was expected of writers because she came from a big family of writers. In fact, this is something I wanted to talk about. Her grandfather was George du Maurier, who was a big theater person, sort of like English, like culture, high society figure. He wrote this book called Trilby and Trilby, like, it's going to sound crazy, but it's also going to sound very, very familiar. Trilby is about this sort of 1900-era hipster, turn-of-the-century hipster. Her name is Trilby, and she wants to be a singer, but she doesn't have the confidence. So she goes to a hypnotist named Svengali, who's deeply anti-Semitic, but who... Is it- yeah, like you could tell from that name alone that there's some sort of like weird exoticism going on. This is where the name Svengali comes from. This is where that sort of concept comes from. It comes from Trilby. And speaking of, that's also where the other thing Trilby came gave us comes from, Trilby hats. That sort of small version of like a a, fa- a fancy like turn of the century hat. That comes from the novel because Svengali hypnotizes her into getting over her stage fright. She becomes a famous singer and she becomes famous for always wearing a trilby, wearing that hat. And that's where the name comes from. And of course, he tries to take advantage of her and like tries to start a sort of cult of his own and take all the power and she has to get out from under him you can kind of fill in the blanks after a century of people like being inspired by it writing their own stories about fame that are much less like weird but that is kind of in its own way where Daphne du Maurier came from okay so we can blame her dad for popular 
popularizing uh, the favorite hat of many an Aaronet misogynist. Granddad, not dad, but yeah. I just realized I'm being a well-actually person, so there we go. I mean, you know more about this than me, so... And you know more about cinematography than me. But that's for the cinematography corner. But for now, Du Maurier, she spent most of her life in Cornwall in in the west of England, in the sort of rural areas. And that informed a lot of what she wrote. Like, if you read her books like Rebecca or Jamaica Inn, which Hitchcock also adapted, by the way, not as famously or as successfully... But they're all about these people who are sort of, they're both adrift in their lives and they have like complicated morally gray pasts to them. There's a lot of secrets, a lot of gaslighting as the term now goes, like she was writing before the play Gaslight, if I'm not mistaken. A lot of like this sense of melancholy and yearning and like repression that is, of course, deeply British. I mean, what's more British than repression other than, you know, colonization? Um, like bangers and mash, maybe? I still think it's colonization. Mm, agree to disagree. It's less that they were the only people that did it, and more that they were, you know, ostensibly the most successful at it for a while. Mm. Or maybe the most proud of their colonization. Well, they're also pretty proud of bangers and mash. I guess. But Du Maurier's books, like, we mentioned they had a lot about gender in them. They they especially have a lot about the sort of expectations of women at the time. As you mentioned, like, it was expected to have this kind of, like, I guess now you'd call them romance novels or maybe gothic novels. And her stuff is incredibly gothic, but... There's also a lot in there about society in general and the like bonds it and shackles it places on everyone. Everyone has to like fall in line and do what's expected of them and like doesn't really have a choice. And so it's kind of hard to think about all that in relation to this story about birds that attack people randomly out of nowhere and murder you. I mean, if anyone's been around a goose, they know that birds, you know, they love to, if they get riled up, they are going to, (laughs) what am I saying? Well, I think you're saying that instead of we live in a, instead of we live in a society, we live in an aviary. Something like that. Du Maurier's short story, The Birds, which was published in 1952, it, it's not what you'd expect from Du Maurier exactly, and it's also not what you'd expect from the source material for the movie The Birds, because it takes place in Cornwall, it takes place in that like rur- rural, agricultural, like unchanged, relatively era of England. It's very much mired in like post-war British fears, the sort of memory of the Blitz and the Cold War on the horizon and things like that. But so much of the story is something we now recognize as apocalyptic fiction. It's a story of like survival, of fear, of planning, of like having to carefully look after what you have and guarded from 
uh, from other people and from stupidity and from the inexorable force of destruction that's eating away at the society that we live in. And also birds. Yeah, birds. Like, the birds are attacking. That's the short story. And she makes a big point of how strange it is not only that the birds are attacking, but, like, all birds are attacking. They're all teaming up somehow. They all, they've been talking. They know what we have. They know what we can do. And they're way better equipped than us for a fight. Which is in part because of their multiple sharp appendages and also in part because of numbers. And like birds are harder to shoot with a gun unless you're really good at it. That's all true. But then there's also the point of we aren't expecting it. And unlike them, we aren't organized. Unlike the chickens and chicken run, another bird attack story. I mean, but... Even there, the birds kind of like took a while to organize. Uh, du Maurier cooked up a vision of birds that was, I guess, a lot more, I guess, single-minded. Which I guess you can read as sort of like an anti-communism thing. My reasoning is like it presents them as like a big unified mass, kind of like how people in the Western world saw uh, communists post-World War II, because that's how... Uh, governments like the USSR presented themselves as publicly. Th- that's a that's a valid reading, but there are lots of valid readings you could make of the birds. Since this is a horror podcast, and this and birds attacking feels like one of those like elemental horror concepts that's kind of universal because like everyone knows birds, everyone understands how they work, everyone's seen them fly, everyone knows how they look. You don't have to be from one specific place or know or like from one specific culture to understand the fear of a bunch of birds attacking you, which might be one reason why Hitchcock completely changed everything about the story except for the bird attacks. But that's for later. For now, let's talk about like the stuff that is specific, because the main character of the short story, The Birds, is Nat Hocken, who's a veteran, almost definitely a World War II. He's a farmer. He has a nuclear family. And he, like, he doesn't exactly see the birds coming before everyone else, but in the grand tradition of apocalyptic fiction, which didn't really exist yet, it didn't really become formalized until, like, the height of the Cold War when people were really reckoning with the idea of, like, nuclear Armageddon. And before then, you can talk about stuff like H.G. Wells, like the War of the Worlds and the Shape of Things to Come. But Du Maurier really anticipated a lot of the elements of the genre, and you can see it in things like how Nat, even though he has no special knowledge of the bird attacks, he understands better than anyone else how catastrophic the bird attacks are going to get and how to guard against them and that he needs to protect people and stop his normal way of life to do it. Which maps on really well to the whole pandemic thing going on right now. But what do you think this proto-apocalyptic fiction kind of vibe has to do with 
du Maurier as a writer before. Like, as I say, this isn't usual for her. Usually she her stuff was a lot more gothic, a lot more sort of behavioral and focused on society. Like, where do you think Bird Apocalypse fits into that? Well, this was the first actual writing by du Maurier I read. Um, like, I had seen the Hitchcock Rebecca, but I am not, like, super familiar. I guess I asked you kind of a leading question, but the re- But I have read other du Maurier. I've read the Rebecca novel, and the reason this was such a surprise to me is, as I say, like, because you wouldn't expect this of her, but, like, thinking on it more, like, really reading into it deeply, I think you do get a lot of the stuff that made her famous. You get a lot of that paranoia. You get a lot of that feeling of, like, isolation and having to bottle things up and, like, having morally gray opinions and secrets. You get all of that with the way she outlines the bird apocalypse because it's not for quite a while into the story until things really get, like, that calamitous. And before that, like, people are going about their everyday lives, they're going about their normal business, even though there are these thousands and thousands of masked birds and there are these catastrophic attacks. The only one who really takes them seriously and knows to be well prepared is our hero, is our viewpoint character. And I think that creates a sense of fearful isolation for the reader in a similar sense to like the second Mrs. De Winter. Yeah. We, we mentioned at the top Hitchcock had a history of adapting Du Maurier's work like Alfred Hitchcock, like what else need be said in some ways, but what do you think he saw in this story? I probably picture him like reading it on his bedside in between abusing his leading ladies and thinking <laughs> this, is, this seems appropriately spooky. And like, if I remember right, uh, he, someone optioned the book. It was him or the writer who had worked on Alfred Hitchcock presents. And Hitchcock was like, um, his direction to the writer after reading the story was to, uh, change the location but keep some of the same sort of structural beats and also that he wanted it to start kind of like a screwball comedy in order to increase the tension of when will the birds attack. So as the way he puts it so that it would stop um, being suspense and be more shock. Although there is plenty of suspense in the movie. Uh, yeah, but he wanted the first like real bird attacks to just be like genuinely shocking. And I assume what he means by that is I guess the first time Tippi Hedren is attacked in the film and later uh, the big um, bird attack set piece at the school when uh, Tippi Hedren and uh, her school teacher friend are trying to get the children away from an, from a mass of attacking birds that have gathered on the school playground. That's something to talk about, too, I think. Because, like, it's easy to write a story about thousands of birds attacking. It's quite another have to actually 
get thousands of birds to be in one place and then look convincingly like they're attacking, but obviously not actually attack anyone because, like, as much as Hitchcock might protest, there are laws against that kind of thing. And that's something else that I think you'd be more suited to talk about. Hitchcock was doing a lot of experimentation with his process of filmmaking and, like, pioneered new special effects techniques. The production spent about $200,000 on mechanical birds. And a lot of the time, Hitchcock would tell the actors they were using mechanical birds and then swap them out with real birds at the last minute, which I guess in his view would have gotten like more of a perform, more of like an actual surprise performance out of the actor. And of course, these days, it's a big part of why his process, how he made um, some of these films is definitely looked down upon. And um, I haven't seen it, but there was like a TV movie made about the production of the birds with Sienna Miller playing Tippi Hedren and I think Toby Jones playing Hitchcock, where that kind of detailed how badly Hitchcock treated Tippi Hedren on a set of the film which included, you know, a lot of stuff like that, Hitchcock subbing mechanical birds with real ones. And also Hitchcock tried a few times to uh, sexually assault Hedron on set, and apparent and Hedron basically kept saying no, and there were other cast and crew members who were telling Hitchcock to stop it, which resulted in Hitchcock mistreating Hedron more. And... <sighs> This continued throughout Hedron and Hitchcock's life because, like, one time Hitchcock sent uh, Hedron's daughter, uh, Melanie Griffith, a gift for her birthday that was a little doll modeled after her mother laying in a coffin. Wow, that I did not know. Yeah. And I guess it's given the birds in particular a strange legacy in that case because it's a movie that when it was released it got mixed reviews and then over the years kind of became viewed as one of hitchcock's true classics like when it was first aired on tv back when movies airing on tv was a big deal it uh broke a record for viewers that had previously been set by bridge on the river kwai hmm interesting i think this point about the other people in Hitchcock's crew, that's as good a segue as any to go take a trip to Mavis's cinematography corner. It's time for the cinematography corner. I like cinematography. It's a thing. Um, and it got to the point where Adam decided that I needed a segment to talk about it so that I don't completely derail the entire thing in hitchcock we have quite a bit to talk about here um this was one of many films in hitchcock's sort of like technicolor era that was shot by robert burks who also you know shot north by northwest and to catch a thief which are absolutely gorgeous movies the birds is also absolutely gorgeous like even on like a frankly mediocre early dvd like i watched the movie on because i got it from the library um support your local library by the way yeah please 
But yeah, I noticed some of Hitchcock's trademark techniques, like the split diopter, which is, if you don't know, a split diopter is a focusing method that puts extreme focus on something in the foreground, as well as keeping something in the background in focus as well. This was something that has since been furiously copied by Brian De Palma, who is a Hitchcock devotee and had made the split diopter kind of one of his own trademarks because he was so enamored with Hitchcock's use of them. And Correct me if I'm wrong, for a split diopter, you literally have to have a, a lens on the camera with two different thicknesses of glass, like the, the camera is wearing bifocals, right? I'm pretty sure that's it. That is just always so insane to me. It rules. Hitchcock's use of the diopter is kind of similar to, I guess, if you've seen any De Palma movie where he uses the diopter, it's very similar, where the idea is that by putting focus on two specific things in different parts of the frame, it, I guess, rules out everything else and focuses and basically jumps out as these two things in particular are very important and you must pay attention to them. It can also be used a lot to create a sort of alienating, unsettling effect, right? Because, like, we're used to the cinematic language of, like, one, one area of the frame is in focus, everything else isn't. When, like, there are two and they're far apart, like, something's off. Isn't that right? Yep. And a lot of the times that Hitchcock uses the diopter in this movie, it's indoors. Like, during one of the conversations during the sort of final stretch of the movie, when they're in Rod Taylor's family's house and talking about what to do, you'll see the diopters then, like, when they're listening to the radio or that kind of thing, or just trying to have a discussion about what to do next. And during that whole segment, your basic section of the film, I mean, you're basically just biting your nails, waiting for the birds to do something. Because, like, during that whole sequence, you just have, like, birds bur breaking through the doors, breaking through the windows, coming in through the chimney, and that kind of thing. And they're basically, like, biding their time until they run out of resources or someone gets seriously injured and being able to like use that alone during an otherwise like peaceful moment in this stressful time to still indicate like that they're really on edge is something that is still incredibly impressive to me Th that's as always the insight we love here on here in, in the cinematography corner i guess I think that means it's time to like sort of go back to the main track. You have these two stories. We've talked about how different they are. Let's get into the nitty-gritty. Like what did Hitchcock change? Like what's going on with this movie version of The Birds and why is it not in the rural west of England? Well, the thing is, like, Hitchcock approached um, the way he adapted the birds the way I wish more things would be adapted, which is being willing to let the book be its own thing and let the movie be a different thing while still 
taking elements from the story and doing what you can with those to make it your own. Like, Demorier hated the movie because she simply just hated how Hitchcock moved it to America. But, you know, I get it. Hitchcock was making big American movies at the time. He was making these lush Technicolor movies set in big cities and whatnot. Like, Hitchcock would have made The Birds the way Dumourier wanted it to be made if he was, like, I guess, like, well before the point where the story was published. Like, if he had been making it his follow-up to, like, the original Man Who Knew Too Much or Around the Time as the lady vanishes it would he probably would have said it in the english countryside he probably would have had it be focused on this family but that was simply not where hitchcock was at that point in his career and like he had just made vertigo a few years prior so you have it set in san francisco and some surrounding areas like there's like the bulk of the movie is set in the tiny uh, town of Bodega Bay. Jesus and Marrow. The Bodega Bays, right? And that's the kind of humor we all love from Adam. You, you mentioned Vertigo. Like, that's not only another movie set in San Francisco, that's another movie about a sort of, like, strong masculine hero who's sort of undone by the women of his past and his present and like his commitments to his family and that kind of thing. Very, very little of which has anything to do with the short story, except for the fact that like in the middle of that, the bird apocalypse happens. Yeah. And also like Rod Taylor is first build. And at the time he was definitely the biggest name in the past and the cast, but the lead of the movie is Tippi Hedren. She is, the reason why the thing is going like why the character stuff is as it is because rod taylor ran into her at a pet shop and decided to fuck with her a bit and that's where you get the whole screwball comedy thing um at the beginning because it starts with like a gag where tippy hedron is pretending to be working at the pet shop and because and even then, it was because Rod Taylor recognized her from a tabloid or something and decided to mess with her. And despite that, um, Tippi Hedren gets um, Rod Taylor what he had come into the shop to look for, which was a pair of lovebirds to give to his little sister, played by none other than future star of Alien, Veronica Cartwright. We love her. We love to see her get get attacked by uh, beak monsters, whether it be aliens or birds. I mean, I guess you can call the xenomorph a beaked creature, but I never really thought of it that way. That everything about the anatomy, I shouldn't have even broached the issue. We should save that for the gender zone anatomy stuff. Yeah, but yeah, Hedrin takes the lovebirds and initially tries to deliver them to Taylor's apartment. But uh, the elevator man, I think uh, tells her that he went home to Bodega Bay for the weekend and that um, leaving the birds there would be a bad idea. So she finds out where he lives and drives down to Bodega Bay. And 
at first intends tr- tries to leave him the birds um without him noticing but he does notice and you know they start having more of a conversation and due to an injury sustained by a gull she decides to stay in bodega bay for the night um specifically with the town school teacher who rod taylor's character had a fling with when she lived in san francisco it's at that point in the movie where like the mom character lydia who is played by the always wonderful jessica tandy also also the school teacher is played by suzanne plachette who is a wonderful and b ubaba yeah i had the name had slipped my mind sorry so anyways uh the lydia character is interesting because she kind of fulfills a role that isn't in uh the book or the short story she she's rob taylor's mother she's very protective she does not like the idea of rod taylor's character getting with a woman and she has and she's very hostile to tippy hedron's character melanie as a result and but she eventually changes when she, she well she finds the body which has been killed by birds obviously I, eyes and pecked she, out. I just want to note the eyes are pecked out. We have zero eyes, and this changes her mind on Tippy Hedron as a prospective daughter-in-law. Because yeah, in part because Melanie is taking legitimate care of her, and she warms up to her as a result, and kind of like has a talk about why she was hesitant about Rod Taylor getting married. Because at this point, Melanie had talked with the school teacher character, and she had talked about her own experience, bad experience with uh, Rod Taylor's mom, and she she has the monologue, things are okay, and then uh, Hedron goes to the school to check on uh, Veronica Cartwright, who is Rod Taylor's much younger sister, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because like Rod Taylor looks like he's in his fifties, but I think he's meant to be playing Hedron's age. Yeah, I guess you could get away with that more easily then. Although it's not as if it's too hard now. Yeah, because like Tandy has like gray hair in the movie, and but I feel like she's coded as so it's like I don't know. I look at her and I think uh, late fifties, and the Veronica the Veronica Cartwright character, the daughter. Um, is I think like they don't specify like what age uh, the school kids are. I th- I don't think. No, but they can't be more than like second or third grade max. They're single digits. Yeah, they just kind of refer to it as the school and the schoolyard, the playground, that kind of thing. And that is what leads to the first huge bird attack in the film which kind of sets everything else in motion and is actually and is actually pretty similar to an element in the book like or in the short story like despite the obvious tangential detail of the setting change there is hitchcock works and his screenwriter work in a lot from the short story like one of them being uh the anxiety of making sure a kid is picked up 
from school before things get really bad. And there are um, bird attacks that kind of result from uh, trying to get the kid from school. Though in the book, it's the father, Nat, trying to get his daughter from the school bus. Yeah, the father who's the main character, the hero, who sees it all coming and is more resourceful. Like, there is not anything close to that figure in the movie. Because you do have something of a fatherish figure in Rod Taylor, even though he's, like, actually an older brother, not a father, and, like, a son to Jessica Tandy. But uh, he, resourceful though he is, and capable and helpful though he is, and, like, he does figure out some ways to stop the birds attacking, but he is caught flat-footed as everyone else, especially Tippy Hedren. Yeah, and Tippy Hedren, I guess, is... Well, she is the main character, and she's the one that sees the most of the carnage during that attack after the gas explosion. She finds herself like trapped in a phone booth and there's like the scene where she's just witnessing all the carnage surrounding her. And that is probably the most horrifying moment in the film for me. Yeah, it is really gut wrenching and it is, as you say, basically straight out of the short story. Like, I'm trying to think, like, the closest thing to that in the short story to me is when a Nat wakes up and sees the birds just attacking his kids. Yeah, and that's the start of the story. That is why, even though he has no special knowledge, he's the guy who understands what a threat the birds are. And in a lot of movies like this, that kind of where there's sort of an apocalyptic angle, or maybe in other pandemic stories or stuff like that, you always have a guy who's like, This is a problem. We got to stop the problem. And everyone's like, You should smoke weed or something. Just calm down, man. And then stuff gets real. And he's like, I told you so. And then they default. And they default to them for the rest of it. That is the structure of the short story. And that wasn't really normal then. Which I think is why um, Hitchcock wanted to change that. Like, I think he found did not find that particularly compelling dramatically. Yeah, we were talking about how that's the most Du Maurier element, or at least the most obvious one in the short story. But in... In the movie, like you say, you wanted, he wanted more shock. He wanted to like catch the audience off guard, and you can't really do that with that kind of main character. So as a result, he made the new lead, uh, Tippi Hedren, who is probably the person most people think of when you hear Hitchcock blonde, and was also, unfortunately, the most maltreated of all of them yeah like there was a story like i forget when that i heard where like someone was like doing a women of hitchcock special and when one of them i forget who saw who had been gathered for the special she deadpanned oh it's everyone he fucked (laughs) i i feel like we're getting close to the gender zone but before that like something i want to note is that in the short story as with a lot of apocalyptic fiction that became that came later, 
there's a lot of discussion about how useless the effect the efforts of like the military are and the government are in terms of fighting against the birds because in the movie there's this whole really really scary scene with like a gas station that ends up resulting in a huge explosion but in the short story you see a plane crash because as the movie sully taught us planes can't fly if there are birds anywhere near them and they send all the planes out and they just all get destroyed and it's pathetic and our hero knew this from the start but we have to sit there and hear it described like over a radio in detail the thing like it takes over all of england if not the world but at the movie in the movie it's all confined to bodega bay it's all confined to that one town and it's kind of assumed at the end that it's all over well the thing is Later on in the movie, there is another radio broadcast that states that bird attacks have been spreading, but they only mention the Bay Area. That is a good point, yeah. This is like kind of a different thing from the short story where the radio is talking about it as a thing happening throughout England from basically the start, and then around midway through the story, the radio just goes off the air and stays off the air so you kind of have that level of nightmare that i guess is honestly scarier now than it was even in the 50s of just being completely cut off because in the i guess in the 50s especially if you lived in the countryside it was easier to get cut off from everything than it is now because all they had was the radio and if you didn't have the radio or you didn't have people who heard the radio, you were basically out of luck as far as news goes. Meanwhile, nowadays, you are basically hooked to the news all the time. To the extent that, like, it's eating away people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a, that's a big difference between the story and the movie, just making it urbanized and sort of suburbanized, too, for most of it instead of being such a, like, rural, agricultural, like, pastoral story, that's a big difference. Because while a sleepy beach town isn't, you know, the most cut-off place in the world, it is fairly close to San Francisco. Because it is portrayed as a drive and a bit of a drive. But at the same time, at the end, Rod Taylor insists on taking uh, Tippi Hedren to a hospital in San Francisco. But, like, I think that kind of works towards the screwball comedy opening that Hitchcock was going for. The idea of this will start out, you think it's a, like, romantic getaway. You think it's, like, a, a like place where they can go away for the weekend and like fall in love and get to know each other and then nope it turns out it's a place where the birds are going to attack you and you're helpless and like the most shelter they can find is a diner and it's full of people who are shouting at them that they shouldn't care about the birds until the birds attack 
that is brand new for the movie and that is really good like environmental horror like disaster movie kind of stuff it's just harrowing indeed like this is so genuinely horrifying at points yeah like doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter where you're from like birds attacking is a scary thought but in that spirit like it looks like we're getting on the on-ramp and what's the on-ramp to it's the gender zone the gender zone welcome to the gender zone Across gender adaptations means there's a lot of gender stuff to talk about, especially for two genderqueer and analytical people like us. And this will be the space where we can really get get into all of that, explore that. And it's not all in the movie, although there is a lot, a lot in the movie. Yeah, like, you kind of start immediately with um, the point of view character being changed from a man to a woman and not just any woman but this woman who's immediately shown to be like sort of sort of in the vein of a screwball comedy character like she's conniving she's a liar she like has fun at the expense of others just sort of stretching the truth and skating by on her looks and her money and her connections and that kind of character means something very different in the context of a horror movie. In the diner scene we mentioned, there's one old lady who said, like, the birds are attacking you because of your sins. And, like, maybe she's right? Here's the thing, though. Like, that is also kind of a big change from the short story, because in the short story, you kind of have a thing going on where, like, I think in the short story, it's definitely more easy to read it as it, it's communism, based on, you know, because of my reading earlier. And I feel like that's harder to do in the film because the film, like, has... It has, of course, the Hedron as the point-of-view character. It has her at the point-of-view character, but it has her as someone who... You're not rooting against her, but you're rooting for her to change. You're rooting for her to, like, theoretically rooting for her to settle down with this sort of, like, nice, stable, hardworking guy. And that's a gender dynamic that, like, yeah, you see a lot in screwball comedies with a different cast to it. But in this horror movie, it's the, the emphasis is kind of more on you're rooting to see her get what's coming to her so she knows she has to change her ways, I think. Obviously, this isn't what I think of the movie. It's more sort of me ascribing intention to the filmmakers, but all the same, it's it, it feels more appropriate to this kind of movie. I mean, yeah, but also, I feel like the movie itself has the sort of, like... I don't think it really judges her much because there's the scene with Rod Taylor at the birthday party for Veronica Cartwright. Yeah, where you get the first real indications of like 
that the birds are attacking instead of just one or two. No, but like over the course of the movie, not just because of the bird attacks, but because he gets to know her, he starts to warm up to her and see things he hadn't seen in her. And the birds as a factor in that kind of aren't necessary in some ways because you get a lot of them before you get them versus the birds. Point taken. And sort of pursuant to that, like in the movie, the story is all about his sort of turf. It's his family. It's his town. And she is the intruder to that. She's like taking the audience with her as she learns things about it, which is very sort of Maurier in some ways, very, very Rebecca. But what does it mean that he's so well established before she comes along? I guess it's just, you know, sort of classic 50s, like remainder from the 50s uh, sexism. Unpack that. It's like what the conservatives, especially in the 80s, though some still do today, um, love to point to as sort of a reminder of better times, which for them, better times means, you know, that sort of stereotypical Norman Rockwell-esque uh, nuclear family living in a brand new suburban home, eating bland food that is considered the best thing in the universe, leave it to beaver type stuff, father knows best. And whenever a woman is portrayed not particularly falling onto those standards they need to be punished for it and that kind of thing but the movie isn't judgmental you're saying i feel like it's not judgmental in some elements like you do have her getting her moment where i'm not really like that tabloids are gonna tabloid and she really forms a good relationship with everyone she meets and befriends in Bodega Bay. And I feel like there are kind of things that are a bit of a mix and match because you do have sort of characters reacting in a very sexist way to Hedron's character and in a way, Rod's character being so well-established in comparison to her is another part of it. But also, Hedron is the undisputed hero of the movie, and it doesn't really require her to, quote, change her ways, much as it shows her, you know, using what was there all along, and I guess proving that she's not the complete tabloid idiot that some people think she is earlier you said that like hitchcock kind of wanted to throw out the original like apocalyptic kind of story because he didn't find it compelling which makes sense to me like what do you think the divide is like why do you think he found this a more compelling way to tell the story of bird apocalypse i mean a lot of the great sort of end-of-the-world movies or apocalypse or disaster movies tend to be ensemble-focused. And while the Birds ensemble is comparatively small, it's Hedren, uh, Tandy, Taylor, and Cartwright. And uh, Suzanne Plachette. Yeah, I was trying to remember her last name again. I am sorry, Ghost of Suzanne Plachette. Please don't haunt me. 
but I feel like the whole just a nuclear family against the world dynamic wasn't something that really interested Hitchcock and I guess in part because Hitchcock I don't want to like put words in Hitchcock's mouth he 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 likes the wrong man story he liked like literally the wrong man the man who knew too much north by northwest he likes that kind of story and I'm wondering what the sort of divide would be like especially if it has anything to do with gender between that and birds hmm I just kind of assume he found it sort of dramatically uninteresting and because I'm putting sort of my words in there, I generally find that structure a bit dramatically uninteresting. And it may be because, like, there's, like, a lot of really terrible father-knows-best bullshit out there. And while I'm sure Du Maurier would probably have slapped me if I said this to her, but the Knack character there kind of does traffic in some of that. And... I'm glad Hitchcock didn't because I don't really find it particularly dramatically and interesting. I mean, dramatically interesting. Here's an idea. The whole point of our show is the sort of divide between the perspectives afforded by different genders. And I think you could argue that the Du Maurier brand of like isolation and fear and secrets and like, I'm the only one who knows the truth and no one believes me. That brand is different from the Hitchcock brand, even though they obviously have overlap through the adaptations. Maybe Hitchcock didn't think that the one kind could translate to the other kind. And he was was more interested in telling a story about the kind of obsession and regret and sin and fear and all of that the stuff that comes from more of the past just being a brute fact rather than the past coming back to haunt you that's a good take you because none of this is secret to the characters in the movie they're all aware of everything that's going on the whole time this is all stuff that Tippy Hedron is learning, but and and we the audience are learning, but it isn't new to them the same way that like in a sort of detective noir kind of story or even a more like Hitchcock accented man who knew too much north by northwest kind of story would be coming to light. It's not about like discovering the secrets, it's more like we know the secrets and their main problem is they make things more complicated in the face of this situation. Whereas in, in Du Maurier, like the birds are the secret. Our hero, Nat, in the short story, he knows the birds are going to attack and he knows he, he's going to have to do things that'll make him stick out from the community and seem weird and at the end seem like callous and heartless because otherwise he and his family are going to be killed by the birds and making that kind of choice doesn't feel like it's something that would occur to Hitchcock or he'd find dramatically interesting in comparison with the larger sort of social issues like 
it's less how will I be seen, even though that's an element, than like, why can't I be honest and why can't I find who I am? You put it significantly better than I ever could. But I want to hear your view on this. I mean, mainly when I said I didn't find it dramatic, dramatic, dramatically interesting, like I said what I meant by it. And and you find the movie more dramatically interesting? I mean, I said before we recorded that I think I prefer the short story, but that's mainly because um, it was shorter. <laughs> and I like short It's things. always a point in, in anything's favor, I find. Yeah, but at the same time, there's stuff the movie does that as I talk about, I significantly appreciate more, like... You know, for example, the uh, main character, Melanie, I think is a lot more interesting a character than Nat Nat is. That's definitely true. I seriously agree with that because the birds, they feel a lot more like her cross to bear. It feels more specific to her, even though obviously they're attacking everyone and like completely random people just get absolutely destroyed they get blown up they get pecked to pieces like it feels more personal in the movie i think yeah and that's in part because hedron is incredible like her performance is great. oh yes and like granted hitchcock went to some unneeded and abusive measures in getting that performance but it is still a great feat of acting nonetheless and had hitchcock not continued to limit her ability to do work i feel like she would have become like a genuine icon and you know not had to do like a bunch of like cameos in certain low budget movies that reference the birds are we gonna do that are we gonna disrupt the sanctity of the gender zone by talking about birdemic shock and terror i mean but only because i want to reference one specific thing go ahead like birdemic uh touts having a cameo by tippy hedren the so-called cameo by tippy hedren is a clip of a movie the director had made before Birdemic called Julian Jack that featured an actual cameo by Tippi Hedren that included a scene of her feeding birds. And the so-called cameo of Tippi Hedren in Birdemic is a scene from Julian Jack playing on a hotel TV. Wow. Like, you can't help but think of Ed Wood, right? Like, like Bella Lugosi just, like, walking out of his house. Yeah, but in that case, it was because Lugosi died before he could shoot anything else. I do suppose there is that. As far as I know, Hedrim was not dead when Birdemic came out. Nope, she is still with us. Oh, that's good to hear. So yeah, no fears of haunting. I hope she she is doing something that she enjoys right now, like, I don't know, reading a good book, or taking a nice nap, or petting a dog, or something. That's a nice sentiment. Like, I agree with how how much her performance makes the movie and sort of bends everything around it. I also think it's worth talking about something that's like 
completely new to the movie, which is like not to get all Bechdel testy, but like there's a whole relationship she has with Rod Taylor's ex, with Suzanne Plachette, the school teacher, that is very, very interesting even before she becomes the only main character to get killed by the birds. Yeah, not going to lie. Some of my gay alarms went off during their scenes, no matter how unintentional it might have been. I do not think it was unintentional. Hmm. Yeah, like, this wasn't exactly the Hayes Code era, but there was still a lot that you only had were able to do with implication and code and everything like that. And I think the sort of homosocial, if nothing more than that, stuff that they have together because she has, because Tippi Hedren has to stay with Suzanne Plachette, like, so she can stay in Bodega Bay and be around Rod Taylor. All that stuff, it's really pointing to some, it's really pointing to something that I don't think you would get in like a British version of this same story, a version of this story that took place in England. That is probably true. Like I am not super familiar with English culture, even though I've watched and read a lot of things about English culture, but and this is not to say imagine... that there are no lesbians in England, to the contrary. Oh, oh yeah, a lot of British lesbians, unfor- an unfortunate number of them hate trans people. Is Sandy Toxvig okay? I hope so. I'm going I'm to look but... it up, I can't let this rest. Okay, I've, I found it. She hasn't really said anything one way or another, but she founded a political party that fired someone when they were transphobic. So that's a good sign. Indeed. But yeah, it's like, I guess the way those things were dealt with in America seemed like sort of like, oh, how strange. And I guess Hitchcock wanted to play a bit with that because Hitchcock is famously English. We we can't, neither of us can really speak to how it was at the time, but like going back, like Du Maurier's whole thing was repression that's what made her so popular that's what made her work so like quintessentially british but the stuff that's going on between the two women like whatever you want to say about it it is not repressed it's a serious emotionally honest and open conversation just like the one that she has with jessica tandy the old the old mother that tippy hedron has like in between a couple of the bird attacks. Indeed. I think this is something that the movie does that the book doesn't, of like the birds really dredge up all these internal feelings people have been nursing for years, which is not in the short story, which focuses more on like how impossible it is to talk to anyone when the people you're talking to don't realize how terrifying the birds are. Indeed. So, is there any more regarding these birds that you want to talk about? I think at the very least it's time to leave the gender zone. Although in many ways we're never out of the gender zone, any of us. That is very unfortunately true. And so, like, to start a bit of wrap-up, like, 
I think you'd know this better than me. Like, what legacy in filmmaking would you say The Birds has? Well, it is definitely considered part of the Hitchcock canon. And there is, you know, Hitchcock was a very prolific filmmaker. He was well known for... You know, he was called the master of suspense, and this was a rather suspenseful work, though he did point out wanting to exchange some suspense for shock. And while I don't think this is, like, considered... Like, I feel like you you could list iconic Hitchcock movies and you could go all day, but The Birds, it does feel up there as one of the most iconic which i feel like is in part because the premise is so simple and easy to say in part because of the quality of the work yeah again that universality and also because this was one of part of hitchcock's last run of movies and was described by more than one critic i read as his last great film hmm what did he make after this? Uh, there was a uh, Torn Curtain. There was Topaz. I know those were two of his last films, one of which was his last film. Like, like we're talking about like Hitchcock's that only the tr- only big time film scholars re- uh, remember. Yeah, that's true. Something I wanted to ask is like. What influence did you think the birds have on disaster movies? Like, when did that get its start? And do you think the birds had anything to do with that? Hmm. Can you elaborate a bit? Like, I think of those as being a big 70s things with, like, the towering inferno and the Poseidon adventure, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Speaking of Poseidon adventure, great movie. Have not seen towering inferno. Um, you can kind of see this, read, definitely read this as sort of like a definite precursor to the big sort of Irwin Allen disaster film canon. But at the same time, like, I don't think a lot of people see it as a disaster movie because like, like, especially these days when people think disaster movie, they think like massive events going down and i feel like people see the birds more as like a natural horror because the threat is nature the birds represent of the birds are like a natural force that is just absolutely brutalizing this small town where would you say the line is between horror movie and disaster movie there are a lot of things that depicted disasters but like around the time that World War II had ended, people started really thinking about a disaster in terms of a sci-fi sense. Like, you think about uh, stuff like the 50s War of the Worlds or Godzilla, the original. Mm. You think of those kind of as disaster movies. But when people tend to think of disaster movies, they think of something where a disaster a true disaster is a major part of it. And 
you result in stuff like the Poseidon adventure, you know, where the catalyst of the movie is an ocean liner is sinking and people want to get out. So you're saying the difference is that like disaster movies have to be more sort of tethered to reality. They have to be like bad things that could actually happen. I mean, when you get to the late nineties, um, at where the most grounded disaster movie is Titanic, like <laughs> it becomes something different, but, but that was kind of like the evolution of sort of the initial waves of disaster movies, you know, and the birds kind of like fits in the middle of the sci-fi disaster realm of the early fifties and the early seventies when the genre really caught fire. Thanks to, you know, Poseidon adventure and towering inferno, that kind of thing. And yeah, do you think I'm weird in thinking of it as a disaster movie or at least like something that you could call forerunner of a disaster movie? Oh no, I definitely feel you. It follows like a similar template and whatnot. It doesn't fully go societal collapse or Armageddon in the way that maybe the short story does, but at the same time, it, is structured around an ensemble banding together to survive. And in that sense, at least, it definitely feels of a piece with it. Hmm. I think that's a perspective on it I hadn't really thought. But, like, that's what we're all about here. And I think that's a good note to sort of properly wrap up on. Okay, then. I hope you had a good episode. I hope you were happy, all you listeners out there. And Mavis, where can people find other thoughts you have? Well, I am on Twitter at I am a something, and I will occasionally write for lutonbus.net. I've been chronicling watching the films that are just in my absolutely obscenely large pile of unwatched DVDs and Blu-rays that I have. Um, in occasional articles there. And that's what I've been doing there recently, but I have other stuff there as well. I also write at Ludenbus, but you can check out the rest of my writing at memeinsider.com. Uh, and other than that, thanks to the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network for having us on. Uh, follow them on Instagram and Twitter at AOAS underscore XX. Read their written stuff at anatomyofascream.com. And thanks for listening, and have a medium day. The Anatomy of the Scream Pod Squad.